Thanks for listening to the High Street Young Adults Podcast. For more information and how to get connected, check out highstreet.org slash youngadults. Hey, how's everybody doing? Hey, uh, I'm excited to be here. My name is Jared, and I am the Young Adults Pastor here at High Street, and I'm excited uh, to be with you. Guys, we're kicking off a new series called To Live is Christ and To Die is Gain. We're going to be walking through the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bible with you, open up to Philippians 1. We're going to be in Philippians 1 and Acts 16. If you're here and you're like, man, I don't own a Bible, I don't know what it's all about, we've got an app that makes it really easy, or all the verses are going to be on the screen. You're not going to miss uh, one thing. But I'm really excited because um, we're just going to be reading through uh, the book of Philippians, and tonight we're just going to kind of lay a, a, a base layer, a foundation of understanding for the book of Philippians so that we can move through it for however long it ends up taking uh, for the next couple of weeks. Uh, but tonight we're going to be in Philippians 1 and Acts 16. I, we, we really believe, when Coco talked about those five things, the third thing is spiritual disciplines. We believe that when we read God's word, God's word comes alive to us. And that God's word will change things for us. That God's word has the power to transform and bring life. And if you're here and you're coming off the street and you're like, man, I don't know about all this stuff. Someone invited me. Church is not my thing. I, I just want to encourage you to open yourself up and listen to and hear the word of God because I really do believe that he will change things for you. Uh, let's pray and then we'll kind of jump in. God, we love you. I thank you for the opportunity to talk about your word and to talk about um, the joy that we can have in you and the hope that we can have in you and the, the way that you can drastically, dramatically change lives. Um, God, we love you so much. We're so thankful that we can meet in your holy name. Amen. Well, hey, normally we like to start off with something fun and light and airy, and really what, what we have to talk about tonight is, is joy. We're talking about joy found in a couple different ways. Uh, I, I remember being 16 years old, really 15 years old, and thinking that, man, as soon as I get to that next stage in life, things will be different. I was waiting for that little card that was like two inches by three inches that would give me the ability to do what? drive, right? I remember thinking, man, that is going to be the key that unlocks cool. Something about driving a car is going to be like, I'll have girls, I'll probably be able to work a ton, and I'll have money, um, and I will be the epitome of someone who is cool. I will be hanging out with people all the time. People will probably want to be hanging out with me because I'll have the ability to drive. Uh, and I remember just for probably two years from the ages of 14 to 16 that I was convinced, man, as soon as I can drive, that will be the coolest thing in the world. And I remember having a conversation with my parents where they told me, all right, you can start uh, working, saving money, because uh, the reason that you need to save money is you're going to pay for your own insurance, you're going to pay for your own gas, you're going to pay, and I was just like, ah, this is not all it's cracked up to be, right? Like, I just thought it was going to be me, like, roaming around drinking Sonic drinks all day, like, everything was just going to be good, hanging with my friends, everybody would line up to ride in my 95 Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme, and it would be an incredible thing. Um, but they're like, no, you actually, you're gonna have to work a lot to do those things. And then when I started driving, you know what the first place I drove to? Work. Like, that was super cool. I drove to work. I was really excited to go to a place and clock in and work for a while. Uh, and my mom didn't have to drop me off, so I was pumped. But um, the danger in that is that you're always considering, all right, what's next? Because I started driving, and then I was like, okay, well, now it's a girl, right? Like, that's gotta be what happens next. And I was convinced, like, as soon as I have a girl, then all those other things will come into play. 
And that girl didn't come along for a little bit. But, um, but then I was convinced, man, as soon as I get out of high school and go to college, that's when everything will kind of be a little bit better to me. As soon as I can get a job that makes more than $6.25 an hour or whatever it was when I was in high school, as soon as I make a little bit more money, then things will be a little bit better. And I graduated college and I started making money and it was like, well, now I just have more things to pay for. But the danger in life and the danger of being a young adult fresh out of high school, fresh out of college, fresh into the workforce, fresh into one of those things, you're going, man, is this all that it's cracked up to be? Surely there's got to be more because this isn't giving me everything that I thought it was going to be. One of the key themes that you see through Philippians is that Paul, the the author of Philippians, that he constantly talks about joy. He's talking about joy, and we'll read it in just a minute, but he says that either the word joy or rejoice or rejoicing 11 times, and in my Bible, the book of Philippians is just over four pages. It's not very much. And I'm like, man, if I had to write a letter to somebody, and I only had about four pages, would I really talk about being that excited, about being that filled with joy, about being that filled with rejoicing that much? What would it really, really look like? I want to ask you a question. Uh, We're talking about joy, but I want to ask you the question, what do you believe will give you life? What do you believe will give you life? Um... One of the most popular, this, this book has so many popular uh, snippets in it. They call them coffee cup verses because middle-aged white women put them on coffee cups and drink, drink tea out of them and feel good. But there's so many verses in this that, are, that sound so good. Well, one of those is to live as Christ and to die as gain. What is it to live for you? If you could refill in that and say to live is fill in the blank. For some people, that might be like, for me, I thought it was just that next thing. As soon as I get to this, that's what living really looks like. Maybe it's just, man, to be, to be alive is to be loved. Like, and you're going to do whatever it takes to be loved. You're going to do things that you thought you would never do so that someone will tell you, hey, I love that about you, or I love that you do that, or I love that that's constantly what you're doing. And really, what you're looking for is acceptance. You'll do whatever it takes to be accept it. Maybe for you to live is financial gain. That your, your emotional state rises and fall, falls with financial gain, financial loss. Man, things are going really well. I've got $7 in my account. I'm freaking out. Maybe for you it's something different that you're just, you're just going for the next big experience in life. The next trip, spring break, whatever you're going to do in the summer of 2020, fall break 2019. Whatever that might be for you, you're just looking to fill that with one more experience, or maybe for you it's achievement. Maybe you are fighting tooth and nail to be successful, and you are leveraging your 20s to make more money so that you can retire by 50 years old and not be like your parents. Maybe it's achievement. Maybe it's success. What is it to live for you? Man, another way to put this is, hey, when you are tired, when you are lonely, when you are frustrated, what is it that you rely on to give you purpose, comfort, or relief? Because maybe it's not one of those big ideal things. Maybe you just have a problem with lust and you just can't get it out of your mind. Maybe you do things so that people will just say, hey, that Jared, he's a good guy. And you end up doing that until you don't know what else to do. That when you get tired, you really resort to one thing. What is that thing? Well, the book of Philippians, tonight we're just going to lay a little bit of a ground level of understanding of what Philippians is, who wrote it, why, what's the backstory of the church. Well, it was the first church in Europe. 
Um, you see things happening in the Middle East, and then finally Paul um, is, is moving things towards Europe. It's the first church in Europe. It's written by Paul and Timothy. In the first verse of Philippians, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. See, one of the literary features is that they wouldn't have said, dear so-and-so, dear young adults, write the whole letter signed Jared. They would say, hey, Jared, writing to young adults. This was the, the way that they would do it. So I'm assuming it's, it's a little more economic. You don't have to go to the end and see, oh, it was okay, now I know who, who gave me this card. It's great. Um, it was written by Paul and Timothy. Uh, Paul wrote a lot of the, the chapters in the Bible, the, the books of the Bible uh, that we see. Um, but this one reads a little bit differently. If you're, if you're familiar with the Bible, there's a, he wrote a lot of books to churches. That were, they really came out as letters that he was encouraging, he was challenging, he was trying to, he'd hear that they had kind of started to believe one thing and he'd go, hey, that's not the truth. That's not what God has for you. And he'd try to correct and guide and move things along. And like if you read Corinthians, it was a church that was just all messed up and he's trying to guide them back to where they're going. So there's a lot of direction going on. There's a lot of that. And in Philippians, you don't see that nearly as much. It's a little bit different. That it's really, it's really characterized by joy gratitude, and hope in Christ. Like I said, you read the words joy or rejoicing 11 times. Um, I'm going to read the next couple of verses, Philippians 1, verse 2 through 8. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father uh, and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you. He has a history with this church, and we're going to get into that in just a minute. He had met a couple of the excuse me, a couple of leaders 10 years before that. And he says, I thank the Lord and all my remembrance of you. In verse four, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. He's praying with joy. He remembers them and it comes up in his mind as joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and my defense in the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for, I yearn for you with all affection of Christ Jesus. There was a word that snuck in there that doesn't belong. And Paul says, hey, I, you're with me in my imprisonment. That the whole book of Philippians, we have to view it through the lens of he is writing this with joy and rejoicing in his soul, but he's writing it from behind prison bars. He's in jail. But one of the craziest things to me is that Paul had joy in jail. And I think that's one of the first things that I want you to really dig in and think about is that Paul had joy in jail. In 2019, one of the biggest dangers is that you can get on Instagram and see influencers, you can see your peers, you can see anybody and what they're doing. And let me tell you that people don't put the lowlights of what's going on in their life on Instagram. Maybe six months after it happened and they've had some, some good things happen after it, they go, hey, just so you know, 2019 was a rough year for me, but now things are going really well, right? That's what happens, okay? I'm just gonna be honest. People put the highlights, people put the mountaintops on Instagram. And you go there and you go, man, that looks really awesome. I wish that I could see that. I want to be a part of that. That people don't put the lowlights in there. That he had joy 
in jail. But we look at things and go, man, I, I have got to minimize my valleys. I've got to minimize how many low times that I have. Why? Because they make me sad. They make me upset. I don't like them. I don't want to have valleys. That I'm convinced that just like I talked about in the very beginning, as young adults, the easiest thing, bar none, one of the easiest things to do is look at the next season of life and go, in that season of life, that's when things will all start to make sense. In that next season of life, man, when I'm out of college, that's when I'll really dig in and start serving God. That's when I'll get serious about my faith, when I'm not surrounded by people that want to party all the time. Man, when I'm out of college and I start actually making some money, that's when I'll start doing something for God. I can. I'll have money. I'll have time. No, no homework anymore, right? Hey, whenever I have a family and have kids, that's when I'll start getting a little bit more serious about my faith. That's when I'll really get some tread underneath my feet and things will really start making more sense. That it's so easy to look to the next season and say, man, that's when things will be better. But here's Paul. Behind prison doors talking about joy and rejoicing constantly. He's, he's filled up with it. He just can't stop. You read this book and then you read some other books in the Bible and you're like, the guy is just overflowing with joy. It's different. How is it that Paul, from behind prison bars, still had joy in his heart? I think sometimes that we are held captive by our circumstances and we're convinced that we will never have joy until our circumstances change. That we are convinced our joy is tied to a season. But I think Paul knew something. Uh, Jesus was talking to the disciples at one point in Matthew and he explained to them, hey, the kingdom of God is like a man who finds a treasure in a field. It's worth more than he could ever make. And he hides it. And he goes home and he sells all of the things that he owns so that he can buy the field and obtain the treasure. And I think sometimes we want to have a hand in that treasure. We want a hand in that field, but we also want to hold on to all those things. And when you hear that story, you go, no, you're having a yard sale. You're getting rid of everything, 50 cents on the dollar. Like, you're getting rid of everything. So you can obtain the treasure in the field that is God, that is an eternity with Christ when all things will be made new, forgiven, eternity with Jesus. But we also want a little bit of what all of our friends have now. And I think this was something that Paul didn't just know, he experienced. He lived that out himself. That he fully understood the joy of the Christian life is found in releasing yourself of all the things in this earth. That's where joy comes from. That's where joy is found. I read this week an interview with Tom Brady. Tom Brady broke my heart when I was 10 years old. He beat my St. Louis Rams, America's true team. Uh, he beat my St. Louis Rams in 2001 in the Super Bowl. Uh, come back behind, from behind victory, um, Adam Vinatieri kicked a field goal. The Rams technically had two seconds left. They could have done something. Azahir Hakim probably could have done something. I'll save that for another day. Um, but broke my heart. He won the Super Bowl in 2001. And then I think in 2003, 2004, 
um, and he did an interview with 60 Minutes, and uh, he, at the time, in 2005, the guy was dating a supermodel. He was not dating the supermodel he's married to now, he's dating a different supermodel. But this is what he said in 2005, at the age of 27, having won two Super Bowls, three Super Bowls, two Super Bowl MVPs, one of the most winning quarterbacks of all time. This is what he said. He says, there's times when I'm not the person that I want to be. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I've reached my goal. I've reached the apex of my life. He said, there's got to be more than this. He had money. He had fame. He had success. He was dating a supermodel, and he said, there's got to be more in life than this. He said, I've done it. I'm 27, but what else is there for me? And the interviewer said, what's the answer? And he said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Those things that we chase after, there's not life in them. Solomon talked about this in Ecclesiastes. This was a guy who had more money than he knew what to deal with. He had hundreds of wives. He had unbelievable wisdom. And he wrote a whole book and said, what is this all worth? The phrase that he kept saying is, it's all meaningless. Why? Because joy is not found in things. Joy is not found in success. Joy is not found in money. It's not found in power. It's found in Christ. In Jeremiah 2, verse 13, he says, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fount of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That God's people have been running from God for generations, and he said their main problem is two things. They've turned their back on the source of life, on the source of joy, on the source of peace that they have, and they've turned to earthly things. In Jerusalem, then, they had really three sources of water. They had living founts. They had water that would run in streams and fountains that would come up out of the ground. They had water that would collect from the rain, and then they had these cisterns that were basically holes in the ground that they dug that they would move water into. But the problem with those cisterns is, one, he says that they're broken, but two, they're stale water. They were never meant to be what they were making them into, so they had turned from fresh living water and they had gone to broken cisterns that had stale water, that they're broken, they don't even hold life, and they ended up going to them over and over, and what happens? You have stale water that you reach the bottom of. Can I tell you that whatever it is that you're putting in your life, that you're saying, my life would be complete if I had, there is a bottom to it. It's broken. It's not meant to hold your life. It's not meant to give you life. It's not meant to give you joy, because joy is regardless of circumstance. Paul, writing this letter from jail, has joy. How do we make our lives look like that? How do we make our lives that regardless of circumstance, regardless of where you're at right now, financially, in school, out of school, working, not in a relationship, want to be in a relationship, not where you're at, you don't have the friends that you used to have because you graduated college and stayed in town and nobody else did. How do we continue to have joy you go to the living water. In John, Jesus said, hey, you, you, if, he talks about living water, and he said, if you keep drinking this earthly water, you're going to go thirsty again. 
But if you come to me, you'll never thirst. You'll be satisfied. I ask you, are you filled with joy? Is your life characterized by being filled with joy? In Galatians, just a couple of pages before Philippians, Paul talks about how joy is a fruit of the Spirit of God living within you. It's something that grows off because the Spirit's in you. It's just there. Is it growing off of you? But the thing that I love about that word picture is that fruit is not meant to stay on the tree forever. A lot of times we think about fruit of the Spirit like, well, I just collect it for myself and it's really nice to have. No, we collect the fruit of the Spirit. Why? Because we show that to others. Fruit falls off the tree and it's a carrier for seed so that it goes and grows. And I think sometimes believers, we wonder, man, why is it that no one in my life is coming to Christ? Why is it that I don't have the impact on the people that are around me? Well, has your life been characterized by joy? Has your life been characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, by peace and love and joy, kindness, gentleness, self-control that are meant to fall off you onto the people around you so that they see not just the fruit of, man, that Jared guy's so kind. No, so that they would see that comes from the Spirit of God. That I think sometimes if we were to really live in the Spirit and let him affect us and change us by staying at the fount of the living water for our source of life, people would look at us and say, what is wrong with you that you can have joy in this situation? Because honestly, if we're all in there with Paul, if we were just along for the ride, and we got put in jail, we'd be, we'd be going, why are you so filled with joy right now? Things are not looking up. Paul, are you stupid? Like seriously, do you not understand the gravity of the situation, Paul? You're in jail. There is no reason to be happy. But he's sitting there going, Jesus is still on his throne. My life is hid in him, so I can have joy right now. That's one of the foundational pieces that we see in Philippians that we have to remember. It sets the stage for the whole book. To have joy in our hearts, not because we're just happy people that are good with every situation, but because we trust that Christ is still on his throne. And we put Jesus first. To set the stage for Philippians, we have to understand joy, but we also have to understand who the church is that he's writing to. And to do that, we have an interesting view because we don't get this with every book, but in Acts 16, if you want to flip over, you see the beginning of the Philippian church. It's one of the craziest things. It's really, really cool. You get to see Paul. Uh, he picks up Timothy on his, on his uh, journey. Uh, Timothy was just a young guy that he started discipling. And he brought him with him. It was Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And they start going to these places. And Paul is, uh, Paul's trying to go. If you read uh, Acts 16, Paul goes to five places before he goes to Philippi. He goes all over the place trying to preach, trying to do what it is. And, and it, he just keeps getting doors closed in his face. Uh, which one just kind of tells me, man, we've got to be persistent. We've got to be bold if we want to see God move. Um, but in Acts 16, uh, we start to get the setting, that he gets a vision, hey, I, you got to go, and it goes a long way, all the way to Europe, and it's, this is the first church that we see started in Europe. So starting in verse 11, uh, let's read Acts 16. He says, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. Uh, I'm assuming I'm saying these words right. And the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. 
We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down to get that down and spoke to the women who had come together. That Paul's MO, what Paul would always do is he would kind of show up to a place and look for what was either a synagogue or a place of prayer, and he would start preaching and teaching there. Because what, what happened is there were a lot of people that were Jewish or had some kind of faith, and they had some pieces, but they didn't have the understanding that Jesus came and made everything new. He fulfilled the law so that we can have life together with God. So he goes and he fills in the gaps. He preaches Christ. He helps them understand that Jesus is the only way to heaven, not just following the law. That won't do it. It's Jesus Christ and that's it. So he goes in Philippi where he thinks that there's going to be a group of believers and what he finds is just a group of women having a Bible study basically. But we meet the first believer there in the next couple of verses. In verse 14 he says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. So stop right there. This was a woman who she was a seller of purple goods. And if uh, you know anything about Jewish culture, about culture in the Middle East back then, about old times, that they, purple was the color of royalty. This wouldn't have just been like, oh, she sold, you know, stuff. No, she sold stuff to royalty that she was a person that probably had considerable means, and we know that because they say that she's from Thyatira, which was a place in Asia, that she was probably an Asian woman who was living in Europe. So you gotta assume that this is like, I mean, I, I don't know who all the people are that are top of the game, but like, you gotta think Gucci, you gotta think the people that are setting the trend, She's a fashionista. She's done it all. She has houses in New York and L.A. and Paris, and this is just one of them for her. Um, she's just here, super rich, considerable means, uh, but still, even in that culture, would have been a woman and would have seen, been seen as someone who's a little bit lower. But it says that she's a worshiper of God. Um, and I think this is interesting because she would have been a person who was spiritually interested. Lydia was a person who was spiritually interested um, she was a worshiper of God, but she was not a follower. She was a worshiper of God, but not a follower. See, here's what we know about Lydia. She was studying the Bible. She probably had some understanding of the Torah, of the first couple books of the Bible. She probably knew some of the law. She was spiritually interested. She was a seeker. She was trying to find some stuff out about this God. She had heard some good things, but she didn't know all the details. So she shows up. She's at this Bible study she, she appreciates some things about God. She's of considerable means, but she does not know God. She does not follow him. Look in verse 15. And after she was baptized, sorry, verse, verse 14, the end. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and all her household as well, she urged us saying, you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord. Come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. See, her... her Stance Where she was with God was that she knew some things. She would have known the first couple books of the Bible, but she would not have known that Christ comes in and changes everything for those that are found in him. That she was showing up, she was doing everything that she knew, but she didn't know that Jesus was the person that transformed everything. So Paul shows up. And he gets to explain to her probably what he's explained in Romans and Ephesians about the gospel and about Christ. That she would have understood the law and seen how I follow some of it, but some of it I'm not very good at. 
And Paul could probably explain to her something similar to what he explained in Ephesians, that, hey, you were dead in your sin. That there's no hope of just kind of making yourself better until you're alive again. That's not how dead works. But God, because of his great love, made us alive together with him. That that's the good news of the Bible. From beginning to end, that's the good news of Christ. That we were dead in our trespasses, but God sent Christ Jesus to be what we couldn't be so that we could have relationship with him again. That if you're here and you're saying, man, I'm just coming and checking some of this out, keep checking things out, keep digging in, but that is the one thing that will transform everything for you. Putting your faith and your hope in Christ is the one thing that will radically transform your life. It's the one thing that will give you joy and give you peace. That's what it looks like to get your life from the fount of living water and not a broken cistern. That that hope is there for you, and I hope that you would make today the day that you follow. And it changes things for her. It changes things for her family. She invites them in, that people in her household were baptized. That she understood the depth of her sin, and she understood who God is and what he did for her. That Paul engaged her in an intellectual way so that she understood. She was seeking. She just needed to understand who Christ was. But look at the next person. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. See, she had some type of demon possession. She had something going on inside of her that she was able to do some kind of fortune telling that didn't make sense to people so that people would pay money to the slave owners to let her tell their fortune. So that's what she did. Verse 17, she followed us. Crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. See, what most likely happened is that the demon inside her fully understood these guys know God. And it's wild. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, which is kind of a funny thing, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. See, the slave girl was dominated by sin. She had nothing going on spiritually. That She was in spiritual darkness. She was in spiritual darkness. Where Lydia was searching, she was in a place where she probably wasn't even thinking about many spiritual things besides the demon possession that was going on inside of her. That she had this kind of oppression on her heart and on her soul and on her life that changed a lot of things for her. And I'm going to ask you today, do you have something, maybe it's probably not demon possession, it's probably not something like that, but do you have something that's oppressing you? That maybe you have something that's just weighing on your shoulders and maybe it's something that's out of your control. Maybe it's something that was done to you as a child. Maybe it was even just some words that were said to you by a parent, by a loved one that oppresses you. That you're in a spiritually dark place because of that oppression. That you don't think about spiritual things. That that even there's the thought of engaging in some kind of spiritual something. It's like, man, that's so far beyond where I'm at right now. I can't even comprehend it. That's where she was. That she would have been poor. She would have had almost nothing. She would have been tormented by this thing. Are you tormented by something? 
Is there something in your life that you just cannot kick? That she was literally enslaved. Is it the same for you? That you feel enslaved to the things that oppress you? That Paul didn't engage her in an intellectual way. He showed her what freedom looked like in Christ. That at the foot of the cross, with the person of Christ, with the Holy Spirit, that there is freedom from that thing that oppresses you. And in fact, God will use that thing that has oppressed you for a lot of your life to show other people God's goodness and bring other people into freedom. There are stories in the Bible of Jesus giving people freedom from demon possession. And they go in cities, and people go, wasn't that the guy? And they go, yeah, and now he's walking and upright and clothed and everything's good with him. And man, what in the world happened? And that person just said, well, it's just Jesus. That's the only thing that changed me. It wasn't that I figured things out. It's Jesus Christ every single time and only. If you're here and there's some type of oppression, there's some type of sin that is weighing on you, the only thing that will release that is Christ. Are you under something? That this person was freed from that. She became part of the church. Look at what happens next, verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So what happened was this demon left out of her and she wasn't telling fortunes anymore and these guys couldn't make money off of her and they were mad about it. So they grabbed Paul and Silas, threw them in front of the court. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, this isn't stocks like old-timey where your head and your hands are in. They would have spread their feet apart so that they had to use tension in their muscles, and it would have hurt incredibly. But look at what happens next. Look at the next verse and tell me that Paul and Silas don't have something deeper than their circumstances pointing them to joy. Look in verse 25. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. What? What kind of hope does that in a person? What kind of hope that when you've just been beaten with rods and thrown into prison that you're fully uncomfortable for who knows how long, that they're up at midnight singing? That's not normal. That doesn't just happen. That only happens when someone's life is so fulfilled with Christ that their circumstances change and they say, God, you are still good. Can I ask you, if, they were in the, if you were in the same position, would you have the same hope and joy? That I want to find myself at the foot of the cross to say, whatever my life looks like, So that God can be glorified, that's what I want it to look like. It says, and the prisoners were listening to them. But look at this, it says, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Crazy stuff is going down. Verse 27, and when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. This is the third character that we see in Philippi. That this is a guy who probably wasn't open to anything spiritually. We don't know. 
But he shows up and he sees my life is about to end because I've just let a ton of prisoners go on my watch. And if I don't do something, I'm going to get killed by the people that oversee me. So I'm just going to go ahead and do something to end it for myself. That he doesn't see his life with any amount of hope. But there's some good news here. That Paul and Silas saw their faith above their freedom. He, they saw the jailer's salvation before they saw their circumstance. Let me ask you, is there an earthquake that's just brought you to your knees in your life? Is there something that happened at home? Maybe there's something going on that no one in this room even knows about. That people would be surprised that that happened to you 15 years ago, 10 years ago, 15 minutes ago. That you had something radically shock your world. That you think that your options are, I let the circumstance get me or I get ahead of it and then things myself. Look at what happens next. It says, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Verse 30 says, and then they brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That Paul and Silas saw their purpose in life so much bigger than their freedom that they saw their faith so much better than that. That they knew that even if they sacrificed their freedom for their faith, if they sacrificed this man's salvation for their circumstance, that God's still on his throne. Hey, if we end up being here any longer, it's going to be okay. That they were fine suffering for the sake of Christ, that someone might know the name of Jesus. Are you willing to suffer so that someone might know the name of Jesus? Am I willing to suffer so that someone might know the name of Jesus? We see this guy in a moment go from, my options are nothing, to what can I do to be saved? All because someone stepped in and said, we're here. Have you said we're here for someone? And something we talk about all the time is finding the one. Is there someone in your life that you can step into the gap in their life that you know that they're going through an earthquake? You know that they have something that has been shaken for them that you can step in and say, and maybe you don't have all the answers and that's okay, but you just need to be there for them. This guy didn't come in and say, Paul and Silas, thank you so much. You guys are such awesome people. He said, there's something different about you. You're singing in stockades. You're staying when your shackles break. There's something different about you. It's the joy of the Christian life to serve people. God can save you from your earthquake that we see later on that they end up staying and someone comes back and says, hey, uh, these two men are Roman, Paul's a Roman citizen. He actually shouldn't have been thrown in jail or beaten because of his citizenship. So they said, hey, let him free. And Paul says, actually, no, make that, make that senator come and tell me I'm free. 
that God ends up saving them, God ends up making good things happen, the, the jailer doesn't lose his job, that later we see that his whole family comes to know Christ. But I think we have to classify that earthquake. That earthquake that's going on in your life is not meant to just shake things up for you. That earthquake in your life is meant to throw you at the feet of Christ, to throw you at the feet of the cross. So that we understand that besides him, we have nothing. If that's you today, God is waiting there with open arms. Verse 31, they said, and they, they told him, what must I do to be saved? He says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. Do you believe in Christ? That he is who he said he is? That he died on the cross so that you could have a relationship with God again? Do you believe that? That can be there for you today. So when Paul writes Philippians, he writes it with joy, but he writes it to these people with this group of people in mind, with Lydia, with the slave girl, with the jailer, that these people were the people who started this church. So he doesn't write to them and go, hey, you guys are so similar. I love you guys so much. They couldn't be more different. But he writes to them having one thing in common, that Christ changed their lives, and that's the only thing. Let me ask you, has Christ changed your life, and is that the one defining characteristic? The one defining trait that's changed you, or is it something else? Because I want that to be the defining characteristic of my life, that it's not who I used to be, it's not that I learned how to be someone else, it's not that I've grown and I've really changed, no, it's that Jesus Christ has come in and changed me, and it's only him, it's all him, it's nothing less, it's nothing more, it's Jesus Christ. Is that your story? Is that your defining characteristic? It's the only thing that will give you joy. It's the only thing that will give you peace. Will you turn to him and let him be that defining characteristic in your life? Will you pray with me? 